Okay, Larry, don't leave the stage. I need you for a minute. Would you put this blindfold on, please? Larry, do you trust me? This wasn't before I played guitar. That's right. Do you trust me? Yes, I do. Okay. Here's what I want you to do, Larry. I want you to put your, your hands on my shoulders. Don't knock my mic off. Okay. All right. And we're going to walk. All right? All right. Ready? Let's go. And when I'm ready to turn, I will tell you. I'm not going to trick you. All right. We're going to turn. Slight turn. All right. Keep walking. Just keep following. All right. Now I want you to let go. And Larry, I want you to take two steps forward. All right, you can take the mask off. Thank you very much for your help. Yeah. <laughs> now, what if I asked you to come up and do that? Some of you would jump at the chance. Some of you would die just coming up on the platform. But what if I asked you to put that blindfold on and put your hand on my shoulder and then we're going to walk down the steps together? That's a little more risky. See, if you can identify with that, you can begin to identify a little bit with what Israel is experiencing in Joshua chapter 3. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, on your electronic devices, you at home join us as well. In Joshua chapter 3, as we think about Israel following into the unknown, the chapter begins with these words, then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim, that's where Israel had been camped, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp, and then we're going to jump ahead a little to verse 15. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. And so Israel now is at the edge of the Jordan. The 40 years of wandering are over. This is what they've been waiting for. The two spies have come back with their report, and now they've moved their camp right to the edge of the river. But there's a problem. The Jordan River is at flood stage. That means it is probably a mile wide and 10 to 12 feet deep. It's debris filled, it's rushing because the snows on Mount Hermon are melting and the rains have come and the river is just seemingly an impossible barrier. And they have two or three million people to get across the river. The way ahead is daunting. The specifics of how they're going to move ahead are unknown to them. But this familiar story helps us because we all face unknown situations. It helps us because it, it draws our attention to a couple of what I'm calling compass points for following into the unknown. And the first one just captures that whole idea because we don't know the path ahead. So we must trust God. The reality is that you and I don't know what's going to happen when we leave here this morning. We don't know what's going to happen this week. We may think we know, but we don't know. And so we need to rely on the one who does know. Verse 2, at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp 
and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and read the next two words with me. Follow it. That's critical. Their command is follow. But if you're like me, you're going to say, but how? Where? And the command is just follow. Follow where God leads. The key phrase that we're going to see over and over again in this chapter is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God or the Ark or the Ark of the Covenant. That phrase is repeated ten times in this chapter. And it's going to be repeated seven more times in chapter four. You know, if if I had the freedom to preach for an hour, we'd have dealt with chapters three and four together, but I'm not going to do that to you. We will pick up chapter four, which is kind of the carrying on of the story next week. But this idea of the ark permeates both those chapters. They are called to follow the ark. And most of us know what the ark is. It's designed earlier in the Pentateuch. It's about 27 inches wide, about 27 inches high, 45 inches long. It has a a lid on it that has two cherubim whose wings extend and touch one another. And the whole thing is covered in gold. Now, as you read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the ark really is only highlighted as it's being built, as the description of it is given, as they're being told how to carry it. We don't see it many other times. But now, in this chapter, it becomes central because this ark of the covenant of the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, your God, represents the presence of God. It's his throne in some ways in in their visible thinking. And the fact that it's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God reminds them not only of his presence, but of his promises to them. And they are to follow the Ark, follow it. Now, there were times before this where the Ark was out in front of them, but what they followed to this point was the pillar of cloud in the day, and the pillar of fire at night. And I can almost hear somebody saying, I am not moving until the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud are there and they move. That was good enough for Moses and it's good enough for me. And God says, nope. As soon as you see the ark moving, you follow it. Follow it into what is unknown. In fact, in verse 6, we see a phrase we're going to see in the chapter several times as well. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. God is out in front. God is leading the way. And they need to follow because we'll see in a moment in verse 4, they've never been this way before. There are only four of them that have ever been in the land of Canaan, Joshua and Caleb, two of the original spies, and then the two spies who just came back from Jericho. Nobody else has been across the river. They don't know the land, and they certainly don't know how they're going to get across. But God knows how they're going to get across, and God knows the land. 
So they are to follow, and you and I are to follow where God leads. But we are also to follow with prepared hearts. The officers give several commands in verses 3 and 4. In verse 5, Joshua gives one. Now, if you were getting people ready to cross the river, not sure how, they aren't sure how, but they're going to cross the river, and doing so is, in essence, a declaration of war. They are going to be at war for seven years after they cross the river. What command would you give? Maybe sharpen your swords, get your spear, make more arrows, fill out your will. I don't know what command you might give them. But Joshua says, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate, that idea is also presented when the law is given at Mount Sinai. In the Old Testament, especially in that era, the the consecrating had the idea of bathing yourself, washing your clothes, abstaining from sexual activity, but it was all outward designed to be inward that they would confess their sins, they would get their heart right with God, that they would be ready because the point is that following God is a holy task. And so they need to be ready, they need to be holy because God, the holy God, is among them and he's going to do some amazing, miraculous things. That command by Joshua really explains the command of the officers back in verse 4. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, the ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So there's a practical reason for a distance. That 2,000 cubits is about half a mile, a little more than half a mile, or since this is Super Bowl Sunday, it's about 10 football fields in length. I mean, the ark is out there a ways. And part of the reason is so that everybody can see it. If it were right in front of the front row, nobody except the front couple of rows would see it. But there's a theological reason as well. It is to be out there half a mile out because God is holy. And they are not to treat the sacred ark as something flippant. They're not to treat the presence of God among them as something casual. They're to recognize that they need to consecrate themselves. And while he is with them, he is also separate from them. He is above them. And so they need to follow with hearts that are prepared to follow a holy God. And the way chapter 3 is written, it's written so that we kind of move up and then we take a step back and move up and take a step back. And it's designed to increase tension. Remember, this would have been first heard, not just read. And so it's designed to increase tension in the hearers. What's going to happen? Now, most of you here and most of you watching, you know the story, so you're not feeling the tension. But but try to feel a little of what's going to go on. By verse 6, they're getting ready to move out. But where in the world are they going to go? Follow. Just follow. And so we need to come to grips with the, with the reality that we don't know the path ahead. None of us do. And so our faith, our trust in God is critical. Last fall when Peggy and I were in Romania in Targumorish, a city we'd never been in before, uh, we went for a walk with Christy, our daughter, one day. And the next day, we decided we wanted to get some exercise and go for a walk again, but she couldn't go. So, yeah, we'll we'll take the same course. 
And so we walked out and we were walking for a while and we came to an intersection and I started to go left and Peggy said, I I think we're supposed to go right. And I said, no, I'm pretty certain we're supposed to go left. Now, she knows after all these years that I have a pretty good sense of direction and so she agreed and, and I was right that time. I'm not always right about what direction to go. But God is always right. He knows even when we don't know the future. Sometimes I wish following God into an unknown future was as clear as following an ark out there. You know, it's half a mile out, but it's out there. I can see it. I know what direction I'm supposed to go. But it isn't that clear all the time, is it? As individuals, we have to trust Him for what we know and what we don't know. We have to trust Him and not give in to fear. So you get that phone call from the doctor's office and they say, the doctor has looked at your tests and he wants to see you first thing tomorrow morning. And you get that feeling in the pit of your stomachs, what's going to happen? Or maybe, as we have a number of folks in our congregation, I was talking to one the other day, you go to the doctor and he says, I've looked at the test results and I have no idea what is happening in your body. I said, so it's never good when the doctor looks at things and goes, huh. And we have people in that situation, it's unknown. The doctors, we expect them to know how to heal everything and they don't. But we know the one who knows what the circumstances are. Or even some of you, Younger folks, you're looking at maybe graduating this year or next, and you're thinking, what's the future hold? Don't know. I might have plans, but I don't know. God knows. In the next couple of years, Peggy and I are looking at retirement. Right now, at times, that looks like a massive raging river in front. But God knows. I don't know. I don't have to know yet because I'm not there yet. I'm not at the edge of the river yet. And as a church... We are in a culture that is rapidly changing. And we're trying to figure out how you do ministry in some of those circumstances. And the reality is, like God said to Israel, we've not been this way before in ministry. But God knows. A few years ago, we were looking at doing a building expansion. Some of you remember that. And as we looked at that, we were pretty close to pulling the trigger on a capital campaign and all that. And and I just kept saying, you know, God can stop us any way he wants to. Never envisioning that would be a global pandemic, you know. And we've reached the point where we as leaders are again looking at, is there a way we can do a piece of that building debt-free with a capital campaign But we don't know. We're just kind of stepping forward and seeing what God's going to do. And nothing is, there are no major plans. There's nothing in place. And before there ever is, you all will hear about it. But we are just saying, you know, we don't know exactly what's out there, but we think we need to go this way. And we're following God and trusting Him. And if it's wrong, He can stop us. And I sure pray it's not another global pandemic. The point is that you and I can move into the unknown trusting God. He is always trustworthy. But we can't expect God to lead us if we're pursuing sin and not Him. Which is the point of Joshua saying to them, consecrate yourselves. Or the author of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, good things that hold us back, and sin 
which clings so closely. What he's saying is consecrate yourselves and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking not to the ark, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we can trust him. But this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never trusted in him for your salvation, then everything I'm talking about doesn't make sense to you. Because you can't trust somebody you don't know. But you can know him. You can come into a personal relationship with him by admitting that you're a sinner and trusting in what Jesus did on the cross to save you. And if that's where you are, if that's the need of your life right now, I encourage you to talk to me or one of the other pastors or the friend who's sitting near you before you leave this morning. If you're watching online, reach out to our office and allow us to share with you how you can know this God personally through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We don't know the path ahead, so we must trust God. But this story also shows us that God sometimes leads us into deep waters for his own purposes. We may not know why God leads us on certain paths, why he allows certain things to come into our lives, but we can trust that he has purposes. I mean, if I had been one of those Israelites with my personality, I think what I probably would have said to Joshua, ultimately to God, is, hey, moving out's a really good idea, but how about if we wait until the Jordan subsides a little? I mean, why didn't God wait? They'd been in the desert for 40 years. What's another month so that the Jordan can go down to its normal level and is easily crossed? Why does God do it at flood stage? Because you see, deep waters are daunting. When you and I stand at the edge of a figurative river that's rushing and a mile wide and and 10 to 12 feet deep, and we've got no boats and no bridge, that takes us back. And we wonder, really? Follow? But look how the story unfolds. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Verse 11, Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Those guys are called to carry the Ark into the water. Now, by itself, the ark as a wooden box wouldn't be that heavy, but you overlay that whole thing with gold, and heavy ark and deep waters is not a good combination. And yet, that's what God says. They are to walk into the water. That's not how God did it at the Red Sea. I mean, can't you hear that good old Israelite again saying, hold it, Joshua, time out. You need to go get Moses' rod. You need to take the rod and stretch it out over the Jordan River. That's how God's going to meet this need. And if Joshua had listened and gone and gotten Moses' rod and stretched it out over the Jordan, guess what would have happened? Nothing. That's right. Because that's not what God told them to do. God said, walk into the water. And then... We get to verse 12. See, wait wait a minute. 
They're, they're supposed to walk into the water. What's going to happen? What, you know, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel? What in the world? Again, it's a literary device. God uses literary devices. It's designed to increase the tension as we're all wondering what's going to happen. Notice we're not even told here why they're supposed to pick 12 men. We don't get that information until chapter 4. But in chapter thir- or verse 13, Joshua finally tells them what's going to happen. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. See, God's not going to part the waters with a rod. He's going to part the waters with feet. And you realize the guys carrying that, probably four of them, the guys who are in front, so the guys in back, their feet are in the water. That means the guys in the front are in a little deeper water. And that's where they've got to be before God will act. But why does God do it that way? Why why doesn't he wait until it goes down? And, And why does he kind of dribble out the information just a little bit at a time? Old-time preacher Alexander McLaren says it this way. It's a great analogy. Sometimes God opens his hand one finger at a time. I like that analogy. I don't like it when God only opens his hand one finger at a time. That's a lot slower than I want sometimes. But I love that analogy It isn't that God isn't doing anything. He's just doing it on his timetable, not your timetable and my timetable. Deep waters are daunting, but there's a reason God leads us into deep waters, and we see just a couple of them in this passage. Deep waters remind us that God is with us. You see, if you and I reach a situation and we think we can do it by ourselves, we can wade across the water, We forget that even in shallow waters, we still need God. But the deep waters, yeah, I know I need him in that circumstance. So back up to verse 7 again. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. He is the spokesman for God, as Moses had been. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Notice both phrases, you shall know twice, experientially, not a head knowledge. You will experience and know by experience what? That I'm with Joshua just like I was with Moses. I'm going to exalt you, Joshua, in the eyes of Israel. We'll see in chapter 4 that happens. And then he says to Israel, you will know that the living God is among you. He's right here with you. That phrase, living God, is not one that occurs very often in the Old Testament. It occurs here to remind them 
that their God's not the dead gods of the Canaanites. Their God is the living God, the creator God, and he is right there in their presence with them. And he will keep his promises. He will without fail drive out the Canaanites just as he promised. Now a few of you in this crowd, the earlier service more would remember, but some of you will remember this couple. Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, famous Hollywood couple 75 years ago or so. They, they were in a movie together, a number of them, but one of them in particular after which they were married to have and have not. And in that movie, Lauren Bacall says to Humphrey Bogart, if you want me, just whistle. When they were married after the making of that movie, Humphrey Bogart gave Lauren Bacall a small gold whistle. Thirteen years later, Humphrey Bogart died of cancer. And Lauren Bacall had that whistle buried with him because she knew the promise was over. But folks, we serve the living God whose promises never end, whose promises never fail. And the deep waters remind us that he is indeed with us. The deep waters also demonstrate God's power. Because when we go through deep waters, we and everybody around us know that good that comes from it isn't us. It's got to be God. Israel was not going to part the waters of the Jordan River by themselves. God did it. Look at verse 13 with me. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And now verse 14 through verse 16 is one sentence in Hebrew as God basically fulfills all he's told them he will do. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now remember, the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that's by Zarethan. We know that's about 19 or 20 miles upstream, upriver. And those flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, we would call it the Dead Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Twice in those verses, in verse 11 and in verse 13, we read, He is the Lord of all the earth. That phrase, interestingly enough, only occurs four other times in the whole Old Testament. It occurs twice here. To remind Israel that God owns it all. He owns Canaan so he can give Canaan to them. He owns the Jordan River so he can stop up the Jordan River and part it. I mean, can you see the scene? They're watching from half a mile away. And the priests are walking toward the river. And they get ten feet away, nothing's happened. They get five feet away, nothing's happened. They get a foot away, nothing's happened. They're standing on the brink of the river, nothing has happened. And then they step down into the water and bam, the water parts. The power of God. 
Now, if you read some critical commentators, some of the critics, they will tell you, well, you know, we know historically there have been times when a landslide has blocked the Jordan River and it's stopped up for a while. And they're right. It has happened at least six times in recorded history. The last time was in 1927. But that's not what happened here because in none of those instances has the Jordan been at flood stage. You can stop up a small flowing river pretty easily with a landslide, one that's a mile wide and 10 to 12 feet deep. No, that's not going to happen. Secondly, I mean, if it was a landslide, I mean, what a coincidence. The moment they stepped in, the landslide, well, actually it would have been before they stepped in for it to hit and stop the water downstream. And by the way, we're going to read in verse 17 that when the water stopped, the riverbed was immediately dry. Landslides don't do that either. This is the power of God being demonstrated. It was a sign of the coming victory that God would have over the Canaanites by having victory over the river. In fact, the, the phrase we saw, the, the soles of the feet of the priests hitting the, the water, that's often used in the context of a military attack and victory. God's having victory over the Jordan River. Maybe you remember in chapter 2, as Rahab's talking to the spies, she says to them, you know, we heard what God did at the Red Sea, and everybody was terrified or is terrified. That happened 40 years before. And they were terrified by what they heard and remembered. Guess what, folks? It just happened in their backyard again. In fact, chapter 5 tells us that not only was God's power demonstrated to Israel, but to the Canaanites. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they'd crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. See, sometimes God leads us into deep waters so that you and I see his power, but so that other people see it as well. As they look at our lives and say, I know Bill Abernathy, he's not surviving in that because he's so good. There's got to be something else. It's got to be the power of God. Deep waters also stretch our faith. If you were to compare the verses 12, 13, 14, or 11, 12, 13 with 14 and following, you'd find that what Israel's told to do, they do. What God promised to do, he does. As they obey, he is faithful. And Israel sees God's faithfulness and his power. And so we read over and over again that the priest stood. In fact, we see it at the climax of the story, the end of chapter 3. Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Yet one of the ways you can kind of gauge the themes and the flow of what God is doing in Scripture is to look for repeated words. So sometime when you have a few minutes, sit down and read chapters 3 and 4 and look how often the word stood appears. It appears in chapter 3, it appears in chapter 4, about nine times, I think. But then it also appears as the waters stand. Because they obeyed and stood, the waters stand. And they pass over. Another phrase, you might want to read the chapter and notice how often it says they passed over. Eighteen times in these two chapters, they passed over, they crossed because they were trusting 
in the faithful God and their faith is stretched. And the priests, they're not standing at the edge of the water anymore. They're standing out in the middle of the Jordan River, half a mile in, let's say. And they're standing there so that everybody going by is reminded that the reason the water is stopped is because God did it. And the Israelites had to walk out trusting that God was going to continue to hold back the waters. And they did. And they pass over on dry land. Sometimes God leads us into deep waters for his own purposes. And I don't know why you may be going through deep waters in your life this morning. You may be facing things that are beyond your ability to cope with. That's okay. They're not beyond God's. His power and his promises are still true. We need to focus our attention, not on an ark, but on a Savior who died for us, on Jesus, on God, not on the flood waters around us. We need to trust. And as I said earlier, if you don't know this, God, then that doesn't make sense to you, but talk to somebody before you leave about it today. It's a familiar story. It just reminds us that, yeah, tomorrow, the rest of today is unknown. We've got to trust God. And we have to trust him knowing that there are times when the waters are really deep, but we can still trust his purposes in them. And it's always important for us as we look at Old Testament stories and New Testament that we don't try to make a one-to-one correspondence. There are principles couple of them on the screen for you that we can learn from it but I I don't want you to say you know every time I have a dark a difficult situation a deep river all I got to do is step in and God's going to part the waters he doesn't always but he's always faithful and his promises can always be trusted and we can trust and follow no matter what so the medical diagnosis comes back and it's not good you can still trust God The medical diagnosis comes back and it's, huh, you can still trust God. That job fails. A potential building plan gets scrapped by a pandemic. We can trust God. Bill Borden was the heir of the Borden dairy, the Borden milk, and all the other things that go with it. He was the heir of that estate. When he graduated from high school at the age of 16 he was already a millionaire he was also a follower of jesus his parents gave him a trip a sailing trip around the world as his graduation gift and as he was traveling and seeing the world he wrote home and told his parents that he believed god was calling him into missions one of his friends told him that he was crazy to throw away all the comfort and the luxury that he could have, to throw away or give up his fortune. He was crazy. In the back of his Bible, Bill Borden wrote these two words. No reserves. I'm not trusting in that fortune. I'm trusting in God. Bill Borden went off to college in that day, no longer, one of the leading Christian colleges that he went to was Yale. He finished there and went on to Princeton for graduate work. On both campuses, he was a well-known spiritual leader. Upon graduation, he was offered all kinds of lucrative positions or even prominent ministries. 
But Bill Borden believed God had called him to, a, to be a missionary in China. And so he stepped into the river. It was at this juncture that he wrote in the back of his Bible, no retreats, not gone back. In preparation for going to China, Bill Borden traveled first to Egypt for language study. He contracted spinal meningitis there and died within a month at the age of 25. He never crossed the river into China. But the third line that he wrote in the back of his Bible, evidently penned during his brief terminal illness, reminds us that he understood that even when God doesn't part the river, you can still follow and trust God. He wrote in the back of his Bible, no regrets. Why? Because if you follow God, even if the water doesn't part, there's no reason for regret. And God used Bill Borden's testimony. You can read more about him in our church library. He used it, but not the way that he expected, not the way that anybody expected. And it's important for us to understand that we follow God and we trust God and we leave the outcome and the results to God. And so this passage in Joshua simply teaches us that God's presence and God's power call us to trust and follow, even if the way ahead is unknown, even if the way ahead doesn't turn out with a storybook ending. Let's pray. Father, certainly sitting here in this worship center this morning or watching online, there are people who are standing at the bank of a river, of an obstacle, of a situation that seems completely overwhelming. Maybe they've even put their feet into the river and it's still flowing hard. Help them to trust, to trust in the promises and the power of a faithful God. Father, help us as your children to rest in the knowledge that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And so we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid of what people can do to me. Thank you for giving us this picture in the history and the life of Israel. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen.